Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Lowdown Society podcast. I hope everyone has been enjoying the last few episodes from my little podcast tour I took of the South and the Midwest two months ago. This episode was also recorded on that tour in Nashville, Tennessee. Our guest is Adam Nitty, who has uh, been just a large influence in the worldwide bass community, I would say, for many years. Uh, His chops and his musicality and his versatility has led him to a great solo bass career, which, of course, he will discuss at length in this episode. And it also led him to a few great sort of artist sideman gigs. But Adam is one of the few guys first guys I would say on here that we've had that is primarily known as a solo artist which is why this is so exciting if you guys are enjoying this podcast please recommend it to your friends we're still a small podcast Uh, if you want to support it on patreon it's tls podcast on paypal it's the lowdown society at gmail.com on Cash App, it's dollar sign TLS podcast. And on Venmo, it's just at Victor Broden, my name. So if you want to help out to make more of these episodes happen and make more of these tours happen where I do many episodes, uh, feel free to donate. Anyhow, on to the important stuff. Let's go to Franklin, Tennessee and a socially distanced outdoor coffee shop scenario. And let's uh, hang out with Mr. Adam Nitty. Welcome, everybody, to yet another episode of the Lowdown Society. Today we are in historic downtown Franklin, Tennessee, at the Frothy Monkey Coffee Shop, overlooking a bustling uh, small town, almost city um, type scenario. And there's some lovely uh, old school jazz female jams in the background. I hope you all don't mind. It's all worth it because we got Mr. Adam Nitty here. Welcome, Adam. Thank you so much for having me. It's, ex- it's exciting to be here with you. Yeah, we have lived in the same city, you and me, for a lot, a lot of years. And we have a few mutual friends like Shane Terrio that uh, when I'm with him, he mentions your name every other second. And, and <laughs> so I always felt like I knew you kind of, but we've never had the chance to yeah. sit down and nerd out proper. Same for me. Uh, that Shane, I guess, has been the conduit between us uh, yeah. singing your praises as well. So so cool to finally sit down yeah. with you and actually have a have a face-to-face yeah absolutely it is um the, my thing with you that i've always and i talked to mark childers about this earlier today and he shared this and and spoke about it also is there seems to be a lot of bass players who excel at, at playing songs and simple pop rock soul song structures with amazing taste and tone and there seems to be a lot of bass players who are famous for doing solo work and more technically intricate playing and uh, even though a lot of people from each camp is, has capabilities on the other side players such as you seem to be extremely uncommon where where there's this extraordinary technical and compositional and solo bass uh, notoriety to your name but everyone also knows if you want a simple song played right, you can call Adam Nitty. And, and, and we just both talk uh, how amazing that is and how rare that is. Uh, how, I mean, th- I know this is a big question, Kana, but how would you describe 
getting into being such a diverse player in both those arenas? Wow, well, it's it's humbling to even hear that description from the outside. Um, so I, I appreciate that a lot. Uh, you know, I, I am I am so much a... Um, what I do is so much of a result of, of my own distractions, like we were just alluding to in a prior, in a prior conversation today. And, and um, I, I have a hard time just staying rooted in one particular thing for, for a long period of time. And, and it's been both a strength and a weakness, I think, at the same time. I have never really been satisfied or fulfilled just playing one musical style or just playing in one type of band or writing one type of song and it's just it's, it's because I've I've been such a sponge you know for so many years I hear things that just they catch my ear and I want to know what they're doing I want to know how to do it and it's been very interesting because as I said it's I think it's been a strength and a weakness the strength I guess is that it allows you to I guess be well-rounded in a, in a sense, and, and hopefully you're, you're competent enough in, a, in enough different um, scenarios to where people will be happy with, with what you do. But interestingly enough, it's worked against me as well because, you know, human nature, and nobody can blame anybody for this, but, you know, a lot of people, if they're hearing you for the first time, they kind of, they sort of categorize you based on their, their first impression or, or the first thing they, they hear from you. So if somebody was to hear me do something from more of an instrumental context that was that was more um, muso-oriented or something like that, if, if they hadn't heard me before, they may kind of make the assumption, hey, this is what that, that dude does, and I understand that. But um, if somebody kind of catches that, or, or I, said, I should say shapes that, that perception based on what they hear, then it's like they're not going to be likely to call you for their groove gig or or for their simple song, like you mentioned before. And so yeah. that's been a battle of mine in Nashville my whole time here. When I first moved here, a good friend of mine told me, you know, you wouldn't, if I was you, I wouldn't necessarily share, you know, your, uh, your past uh, instrumental records that you've done because you don't want to give off the wrong impression about what you aspire to do. And I, it scared me a little bit, and I, I sort of followed that for, for a while, thinking, okay, this is the more conservative, safe thing to do. I'm trying to get to know people. I'm trying to get, get work. But after a couple years, it just, I felt like I was kind of, I don't know, almost be, betraying, you know, some of my aspirations. And and um, I guess I had to make a decision one day, you know, whether or not I was going to try to just do everything or everything I wanted to do, I should say, or, or just, you know, try to be very protective about only making myself uh, visible in certain contexts. And, you know, there was... Some, some positive things came of it and some negative things came of it in terms of getting work and not getting work. But at the end of the day, I don't have any regrets because it's it's funny how sometimes, ironically, the thing that you do that may be a little more opposite to the situation that somebody's working in, that attracts them to you and, and gives them, for whatever reason, the, the fascination or the interest in having you on something that they're doing that, that is that is different. And that that's... That surprised me when, when that uh, when that happened, and um, so I'm just trying to have a trying to have a voice, and at the same time, I, I love the idea of supporting other people's voices too, as as a side man. And I've been fortunate; I, I've gotten to do a large variety of things. I'm super grateful. Yes, yes, and there there's so much to get into on that large variety of things, and uh, 
these podcasts can be very non-linear in their uh, talking about your career, but what year did you move to Nashville? It was the end of 2004. Okay, so I, you got here I, after me. Yeah, and I was in Atlanta before that. And um, yeah, I got a I got a uh, an audition for um, an artist uh, called Stephen Curtis Chapman. He was they had lost their bass player. They're looking for a bass player for an upcoming tour. And uh, one of my students in Atlanta played for a band that was under the same management company. And so he was he was aware of the, this audition coming up. And so I found out about it, drove to Nashville to audition. Fortunately, got the gig. And then six months later, my wife and I decided we're going to probably need to move because the logistics of me going back and forth just don't really make sense. Yeah. So, yeah, I've been here ever since. Yeah, and that, I think that's a common story with people that get the Nashville gig before they yeah. move to Nashville is they try to make it work from the city they're at and then the travel from Memphis or Louisville or Atlanta into Nashville to catch bus call or catch a plane becomes financially and time management-wise not an option anymore. Yeah. But uh, for people who aren't hip to, especially back in the uh, two early 2000s, Stephen Curtis Chapman was a big, big artist in the CCM world. So yeah. it's yeah. not like your first Nashville gig was an entry-level gig by any means. It was a very, very you know, sizable tour. Yeah, it, it was my first time um, doing a tour that was sort of outfitted as as it was, where, you know, a lot of the elements that I had always sort of, I guess, you know, dreamed, and, as, dreamed of and aspired to in terms of, um, you know, living on the road is tough. I mean, you know that, but but uh, it got about as good as it could be in that in that particular scenario because there was a large enough budget, you know, for that for yeah. that to uh, for that to, to be there. And for me, it was also um, for my wife and I. It was a um, it was a bit of a, an increase in quality of life in that I was finally making enough money where we didn't have to worry so much about about the bills and. You know, I've never been rich or you know super wealthy or anything like that, but it did give us a, it did give us some more comfort than we had been used to before. That's wonderful. Yeah. How many years did you last on that gig? That was about four and a half years, and uh, it's interesting because time flies when you're on the road, as I know you can relate to. Yeah. And it was one of those things where that tour and working with with him. It was kind of really, but there wasn't much room for anything else unless we were, you know, between tour legs. And then I was basically momentarily unemployed until the next tour. Yeah. So you learn pretty quickly, of course, how you how you ration, you know, your income and all that other stuff. But the the thing that was that kind of affected me a little bit more deeper in in terms of reflecting on the time that was going by while I was involved was I had this sort of you know sideline ish solo career where I was releasing these instrumental records and at that point I had released I think when I had when I got that tour I had four records under my own name that I had released by that point and I didn't have any idea of just stopping or, or interrupting those but um, that's exactly what happened when I started touring more regularly and I snapped my fingers and it was like two years of my life had gone by and virtually all my time was invested in supporting another artist um, love the gig and you know love love doing it but I wasn't doing a really good job of 
protecting time for my own creative endeavors. And so that I started to think more about how am I going to how am I going to allow these sides of what I enjoy to peacefully coexist and after 4 years I kind of decided, you know, this has been an amazing season, an amazing run, but I think it's maybe getting closer to time to maybe step off and and just try to do some other things, namely resume work on, on, on the record that I had started and never finished. Yeah. And um, so after about, yeah, it was about about four years, six months or so, I started I started subbing out the gig um, to, to another bass player and basically kind of phased out that, that way. And everything was really cool and um, cool and friendly and, and, uh, and all that. But, um, yeah, the rest... <laughs> there's a there's a lot of stories that, that happen after that, but that's kind of where I started to step off on, on faith and go, you know, I'm going to try some other things. Yeah. So before we leave that Stephen Curtis Chapman touring era, since it's almost 20 years ago when that started. Oh my gosh, that's you, scary to even hear. Do you, uh, wow. do you remember what kind of gear you used back then? I do, because of how excited I was that I got to... <laughs> bring it with, uh, bring it on stage with with roadies and whatnot. Um, I had a, uh, I had this monster setup that I can't believe that they ever approved. To, you know, I, I could use. I love this story already. Yeah, it was, and this, and and I have to give kudos to the um, front of house engineer because he was encouraging me. Uh, even if it was irresponsibly so. He was encouraging me to bring as much stuff as I, as I wanted. And so I was like, okay, well, so I had four 410 cabinets and two really high-powered amplifiers uh, powering everything and a big old rack, and, and um, it looked glorious, and it yeah, felt yeah. glorious. But after, uh, I remember after the first stage of production rehearsals, um, I remember Stephen coming to me and just as politely and, and diplomatically as because he's he's just salt of the earth, nicest dude in the world. Man, can we do anything about the volume on stage? And so I was, you know, I was happy to uh, happy to oblige. And so it turned into a thing where I ended up just powering two of the cabinets, and the other right. two just kind of became more show. Yeah, but two four tens is still in this day and yeah. age. That's a mighty rig. It was. So what kind of brands are we talking there? You said Iraq. So it was in that rack, yeah. and you said power, high-powered amps. We, we need all the info here. Yeah, so... We're that type of place. So <laughs> at that time, um, I was working with uh, SWR Sound, mm-hmm. and I had four of the Goliath 410s, mm-hmm. and um, I was using a 750X to power two of the cabinets, and then um, they had a power amp only piece that I'm... The name is slipping me right now, slipping from me right now, but... Um, there's another 750, 800-ish watt amplifier that, that I was um, using for the other two cabinets. And it was cool because I could, I could vary the output of both amps separately, and I could kind of tune things the way I wanted to. I ran everything full range. Um, I was using an uh, Avalon U5 as a, as a DI for, for those tours um, to send a, to front of house. And, but they were also miking one of the cabinets as well, so it was cool. Um, Russ Long, the front of house guy, really believed in having as many sources as he could, which was yes. which was cool. Uh, yeah, and then I was I was uh, playing a pretty wide variety of, of bass guitars. We um, because of the way that the set was configured, 
We also had sort of a pseudo-acoustic set as, as well that was kind of part of the show. It was more broken down volume-wise. I carried everything from a early 70s Kent hollow body bass for the you know acoustic set to uh, I had a I had my 64 Fender jazz bass out with me and had a custom Kerbo, Greg Kerbo five-string bass. I had a, another Fender jazz, a newer Fender jazz. I had... Um, I think I had a Yamaha TRB out with me as well. And then I had another, I had a, I carried another spare with me. I needed all of those for different tunings and, and different sounds for, for what we were doing. But then I, I always carried a five-string spare as well. And um, that would either be, it was either a Music Man Stingray or um, uh, another, oh, it was a Mike Lull. That's right, I had a Mike Lull five-string that I still have. A modern five, and it was it was uh, it was one of those two that I, that I always had as, as well. So, and then for for fly dates, I would usually just bring two bases with me to two of those, and it always made sense to just bring five strings because it was kind of the five string was the bass that could play the entire set if I needed to. Yeah, <coughs> it's pretty impressive that you remember that rig from so long ago in detail. I just, yeah, I was so excited to have all that. I'm a gear addict, so yeah. the thought of toting all that stuff around on the on the trucks was just super excited. And, so, so. Uh, if we stay linear for, for once, then after you made that very courageous decision to uh, face yourself out of the Stephen Curtis Chapman gig, uh, certainly that was a good paycheck and, and a, a musically a great gig to focus more on your own stuff. How did that transition work, and what was the next sort of phase of your career after that? Well, unfortunately, what happened was the bottom completely fell out after uh-huh. I left that gig. Uh-huh. And the truth was that I had been in Nashville since the, you know, I moved at the very end of 2004, but that gig is what moved us here, and I was never at home. Um, and the times I was at home, People kind of associated with me, associated me with that with that gig, or, or as being a road guy. And so, at least at that time in Nashville, it was it, it was very polarizing. You know how how people wanted to they wanted to be able to pa- categorize you. Like, are you a live guy? Or are you a studio guy? And it was it was hard for in the circles I was running in. It was hard for some people to understand that no I, I do both yeah. <laughs> so so that was that was kind of a new phenomenon for me to experience and and I just I didn't have anything that had been instituted in town for long enough a period of time for people to kind of have me on their radar so it was really tough you know the income wise that had just dropped out my wife had to had to work more than, than she was and it was a it was a huge adjustment so I was trying to um here I was trying to dump, you know, dive into this more creative endeavor, finish this other instrumental record, but I was also balancing the stress of trying to figure out how to, you know, keep paying the bills. And so, honestly, what kind of saved me was being able to lean on the teaching aspect a little bit more. And, and although I never had a lot of students per se, um, Nashville is an interesting place because it's just not. It's not as many people here that there would be maybe like in Atlanta where there's it just seems like there's a lot more people that are that are taking lessons there whereas in Nashville it's like you know people come here to do music they're not necessarily coming here to study music yeah. unless they're going to school so 
you know, the, the market wasn't as ripe for, for picking up that kind of work. So I had a handful of those. And then eventually I was lucky uh, that uh, another great Nashville bassist, um, Roy Vogt, who had been uh, heading the bass department at um, Belmont University for many years, had kind of gone to bat for me. And, uh, and uh, when he needed an overflow instructor, he, he helped get me uh, a gig at Belmont as an adjunct. And so I had that to, to also help me as, as well. And you hold down that to this day, correct? I do. That's been a constantly varying number of students. Uh, as an adjunct, I, I, um, my number of students changes every semester. So um, basically what I, what I do is I'll, I'll teach some of, the, some of the elective base lesson students and then some of the majors. And then in more recent years, had some graduate students as well that were, that were studying privately with me and doing recital prep and stuff like that but um but yeah so that's that's kind of remain and they've been amazing because i've still been able to do tours um they've been really flexible as long as i make up the the time um and i've i've finally learned how to do that you know in a in an organized way um as long as i can make it up they've they've been really cool about that so i've been able to keep that so my follow-up question to that then would be to help our listeners, whatever level they might be on, ask somebody who's taught in some capacity at one of the most major music colleges in the nation, maybe the world, Belmont, uh, what do you see, and these are people that are committing their lives or careers to bass in many cases, so we're not talking about casual players here. What do you think is the biggest struggle that your students have? Well, that's a great, great question. It seems like students' level of facility continues to get better and better. You know, there's there's no shortage of young, talented bass players these days. It seems you know if you if you use the if you use the music school as the barometer there. You know, people coming in. You know, so many of them are really talented. You could tell that they've worked hard. But the struggle for them, I think, is that I think that they're coming from, because of the age they're at, they're coming from a different perspective with respect to their work ethic and, and more of being aware of needing a more holistic approach to, to stepping into the industry. You know, when I was coming up as a player, it was we didn't have videos and you know on YouTube and we didn't have... Um, tablatures of everything under the sun to help us you know it was listening to recordings and stopping rewinding starting stopping rewinding starting it was a different type of it was a different type of pursuit you know trying to trying to get your facility you know trying to go hang out with people that that you looked up to and just you know there's I don't know it just seems like there was more mentorship type situations that were you know real life uh, you know real 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 connections with people and you know, now we live in so much more of a virtual-based world, and I feel like there's more of a disconnect there with, with some of the students. And so when it comes to some of the relational things and what it means to... Um, <laughs> I, I have to say this. One, one, of, my, one of my friends, uh, good, good friends from a musical past in Atlanta, his name is Peter Stroud. He's a guitar player. He's been playing with Sheryl Crow for many, many, many years. He... He succinctly summed it up one day, just the importance of 
you know, what it means to be somebody who is likable and workable. He said one day, he goes, man, he goes, at the end of the day, it's all about just being a dude. <laughs> and I understand what he meant, you know, being a great hang, not being pretentious, you know, being relational, uh, uh, being a chameleon in different types of situations and different types of personalities, being able to get along with all types of people. I see a lot of students come through, they haven't had enough interactions, you know, outside the shed to where they're ready for that. And so a lot of our conversations uh, are, are based around the idea of what it means to actually immerse yourself in the experience in a, in a very real way, whether it's, you know, behaving on a tour or, or on a session or what people's expectations are. And, and um, I don't know, I, I, that's something that kind of keeps coming to the foreground. So, if I'm understanding you correctly, basically, it is that they've, they've done the work and they've had the work ethic, but they've done so much of it in a shed, in their own shed, instead of in a room with other people, that maybe their, their ears uh, and their awareness of where they fit in as a bass player and as a person in a social setting is not quite what people like you and I who had to start basement bands all the time. Right. Is that sort of what you're hinting at? Absolutely, yeah. You said it more succinctly than I did. I apologize for being long-winded. No, but, no, it's but, just uh, super interesting to me because, yeah. you know, uh, you're in early 50s, correct? 49. 49. Mm-hmm. I'm 47, so, yeah. you know, it's, it's, uh, it's an, it, you know, it's a generational thing, I think, because yeah. for me, to quote my idol and the reason I wanted to play music, Bruce Springsteen, he always talks about he needs it like a drug because it's the way he connects to mm. the rest of the world. When he comes out on stage in front of a stadium full of people, it's not so much that he needs to feel adored, but he he needs to be one with other humans otherwise he doesn't feel human himself Mm. and uh, I always think about that when I play music even if I'm home and I'm practicing with a metronome or playing along to a record I enjoy uh, the minute I play with another person whether it be a bass buddy and he plays a few chords and I play a little melody or I'm playing with a drummer in a room all of a sudden it's like I went from plugging in my hand into a 110 volt outlet to plug <laughs> it into a 220 volt outlet. Mm, it just good. takes, and I, I respect that there are other musicians that that use music from a deeper introverted place. But I am an extrovert, and for me, my bass is just the way I connect with mm. humans. I think a lot of people say my instrument is how I connect with myself and my own emotions. And with me, it was, it was always like it's the best handshake I know. Yeah, you that's know? great. You bring up an interesting point. You know, you talk about being extroverted, and, yeah. and I don't know if you agree, but it seems like if you look at sort of like any random cross section of bass players, it seems like there's a, there's a healthy number of introverted bass players. It's almost like the instrument will, you know, will attract that type of personality as well. Absolutely, um, I agree 100. I kind of see myself somewhere in the middle. Yeah, um, but, but. For that reason, I think it is even more important for for players to understand the importance of, of connection. Um, the uh, the silver lining and kind of what I was alluding to before is that when the students come to let's you know Belmont, for example, where I'm meeting so many of these these players, you know that is a that is an environment where 
people can really dive in immediately into ensemble situations at, at school and and I've been able to kind of see players that come in maybe a little gun shy they start to get involved with even just you know small little ensembles and those are the beginnings there's are sort of like the gateway to their networking world and a lot of these a lot of these students if they get some encouragement and some coaching in terms of you know relational type things and also um, just as importantly like music business related things because that's another that's another uh, it's another topic that I think it, it kind of falls by the wayside for a lot of players they start to get some confidence then all of a sudden they, they begin to thrive there because there's so many players that are so hungry it's like they, they kind of egg each other on and then you know before you know it my students are even more connected than I am <laughs> and I've been in this business for decades you know yeah. it's, it's, it's really incredible so I think they can end up in even greater places it's just sometimes all they need is, is an objective um, encouraging word or words from from somebody and and I, I I really do I'm not just saying this I mean I, I consider it an, an honor to be able to be a mentor to, to some of these people because it was so important for me I didn't always have a mentor when when I started playing I didn't have anybody and I was just flying by the seat of my pants and I really had to get my butt kicked many many times to learn some very basic lessons that I think could have been avoided had I had somebody kind of watching over me and you know giving me some advice so I had a lot of hard lessons to learn but um, being able to kind of share some of my experiences with people if I can help them avoid an extended period of time that might take them to get from A to B or avoid a potentially painful or humbling situation I mean that's it's a lot of power in that I don't I don't take it for granted that's beautiful I'll uh, one more uh, question then about teaching what do you find is the most effective way to help a student with timing or groove issues another great question um, so I'll, I'll answer that in kind of two parts the, the first is that um, if you're like me and I'm, I'm sure you are you know we we've invested a lot of hours in the metronome and you know aligning ourselves to a, to a timing source trying to get essentially our technique aligned with um, what I would call like an absolute source of timing that, that doesn't deviate so, so our bodies can feel what it feels like to be in, in rhythm and um, I think that is a great way to get, to get started but for players that haven't quite gotten seasoned yet you know if you want to use that, that term they're not quite seasoned in, in their timing what they have to learn is that you know your your groove and your timing don't really mature until you develop your internal clock. So if you spend all of your time pursuing an external clock source and, and basically moving yourself to align with an external source, although that is an important um, ground floor step, and I, and I still practice that way to this day. I'm not I'm not saying that ever loses its validity. But if, if you only do that and never never start working on the internal clock, it's tough to develop that real innate, convincing, um, inspiring level of groove that gives people confidence in playing with you and makes them feel good about what they're playing. Mm -hmm. And that's our job, I think. You yes. know, that's, that is, that's a huge part of our job. 
So for some players, it's about kind of weaning them off of a dependency on the external um, and, and learning how to play more in the spaces, if you want to refer to it as that. So, so one of the things that I will do is I'll, I'll take an external timing source, but I'll present it to them with larger and larger gaps. And a real simple example of one of the things that I'll, I'll use to, to work with players is I'll, is I'll take just a, just a simple metronome click and start it at a real high resolution. Maybe it's playing 16th notes or 8th notes at a particular tempo. And so the more note, the higher the resolution that they have to play to, it's the more things kind of reminding them where the time is because they're hearing more activity. More subdivision. Right, exactly. The subdivision is key. So when you start to take away the subdivisions, now they've got more space that they're having to kind of fly on their own in between. And then you just progressively kind of take those away. And I always do it in divisibility of two. So if I'm starting them playing a groove with eighth notes, then I'll, I'll have them stop take a breath now let's do it with just quarter notes only for the metronome now let's move to half notes let's move to whole notes and just keep going even to the point of playing one click every four bars which is pretty scary if you've never done that before. very scary and it's you know that's still scary for me you know and i've been practicing that way for for years but it, but you do develop more confidence with it and you do get to a point even if it takes several iterations you do eventually find a place where you settle into a timing zone that puts you at a level of accuracy with those large, large holes. And that's, that's a very, that's kind of a, a neat sort of, if you want to call it like an arts and sciences kind of way to, to sort of break it down yeah. for somebody mechanically. But, you know, you can do the exact same thing with live musicians. Mm-hmm. You could be playing with a drummer, and I've done this before and it's fantastic. You play with a drummer where you all sort of agree on where the pulse is going to be. And the drummer drops out, and you drop out, and see if you all come back in at the same time, right on the one, you know, or does it flam? You know, yeah, we're talking about two potentially varying clocks between two human people. Yeah. But there's also an amazing. It's one of those magical things that can occur. It's it's a less tangible aspect of music where you connect with somebody and their timing without there having to be a source it's like you it's almost supernatural in the way sometimes you can connect with somebody's timing i know you've experienced it before it's, it's hard to explain until you do it but it's almost like you you're inside the other player's head and vice versa and yeah. you kind of predictively know where they're going to put put things and it's yeah that's to me that's taking it a little higher level but it but it starts with the beginnings of relying more on your internal clock and what that means Thanks so much for that. There's a lot of good stuff in there. And uh, the, the feeling you mentioned here at the end about when you feel like you're in their head and they're in yours, when I told you the musical handshake, mm. that I, when I feel like connection is my high of music more so than playing by myself, is when I have that with a drummer, it's an undescribable feeling to people maybe that aren't, that don't play music or that haven't experienced it yet, that are starting out. Once you feel like you're in somebody else's head, you're communicating not with your brains, or you're communicating with your hearts, as cheese as Exactly. It That's so well said. And, and, yeah. and uh, it's wonderful to bypass your brain. And we, us musicians, especially somebody like Adam, who's so technically proficient, have spent all that time 
to fill the brain with the necessary information and experiences to be able to bypass it. <laughs> isn't that isn't that the end goal? That's a, I mean, really, that's that's a great way to to say it. you you train hard so that you don't even have to think about that yeah. stuff. It becomes innate, and that's that's the hope. And with the part of the reason I ask you for your favorite metronome or groove exercises is I ask that as a student myself mm. because I I was interviewed on a Swedish uh, a studio I guess their version of Mix Magazine last month and for some reason we got in on you know uh, natural born talent versus work mm. and uh, I always had a good melodic ear relative pitch you know you even before I really knew what a sharp four was if somebody gave me the, the root note I could easily so making charts for simple songs without a bass in my hand was never a problem even when I was younger uh, but my groove I was not born with a groove mm. so the melodic ear I've developed a little bit but just, I was just given a big old serving of melodic ear at birth <laughs> or however but the groove thing I've had to investigate like a scientist mm. and uh, just to finish off the question I, I, I uh, asked you uh, there's a VCR instructional tape by Randy Jackson yeah you know the American Idol Randy Jackson uh, and he has a flat top hairdo it's hilarious he's probably 23 years I old I remember the exact and tape the tape mm -hmm. is called Mastering the Groove yeah. and it it changed my life in profound ways he turned on mainstream top 40 pop rock grooves and demonstrated playing a little before, mm. on, and after the beat, behind the beat. And uh, it was the thing that I needed the most in my life. And even though I don't watch it that much, I still almost daily reference that in my head when I'm doing a what I call a mail order track. Somebody emails yeah. me their MP3 and I'm just putting bass on it. Uh, I. I Sometimes I don't even know which one feels best, and I have to try them all. Mm. You know, and and but for me, the groove, the groove is a constant struggle. But in a way where I am thankful I wasn't given a tremendous sense of groove too, because then I might have been lazy. Because I think we both, uh, as talented as you are, we might have both grown up around people that had so much innate talent that they maybe didn't apply themselves. Yeah. You know, whether that was in school or musician-wise. And the groove was not a handicap for me, but not a given. Yeah. So to this day, I'm, I'm working and I'm asking to people who groove hard, how can I make myself better? Yeah, yeah, that's so cool. I, I'm the same way. I have the same attitude about it. You know, it, it's funny because while you were talking, I was thinking about when I started playing bass and, you know, I didn't have a mentor and just what... I was trying to figure out what's the what's the formula to get good, and as a young player and without musical maturity, the the, the thing that attracted me to a lot of the music I was listening to, because it was so interesting, was the flash, you know. And so early on, I was thinking, oh, so it's really if you get great technique, then you can be a great player, you know. I'm hearing these flashy things from these. From these from these different players, you know, listening to Billy Sheehan and Jocko and all these all these great technicians, you know, and, and um, 
And so I thought that needed to be the forte. And so for a very long time, I invested thousands of hours in, in technique. And the good part of that is that I finally bought myself so much technical headroom at one place that I didn't have to struggle with it as I matured more as a player. So it didn't take me as long to adapt to different musical situations that required facility. But the bad thing was that during that time, I was was also ignoring other elements which are so important that I didn't even understand because they weren't really brought to my attention. Because all I really knew to be my teachers were, were the recordings I was listening to. And sophistication got about as deep as I'll play with a pick if the original player was playing with a pick and I'll play with my fingers if the original player was playing with the fingers on the recording. And I was just trying to emulate these, these players. But the groove thing I didn't even understand until I, I started working with, with players that were talking about it encouraging me, hey, can you, and it just needs more groove. And they would sort of nitpick and, and identify what they wanted to, to hear more of. And I had to be, I had to really be taught how to hear that because I, I hadn't listened to that at the beginning. You know, I didn't, I didn't understand it. The other thing that was, that was super interesting was, and I didn't have anyone guiding me in this way either, but your tone has so much to do with ultimately where, where you land in a particular groove or particular um, the approach. Veloc- the velocity of the attack. Yeah. yeah. So you, I didn't know this at the beginning when I started playing, but you know, what your instrument sounds like, how it responds, influences your playing. And it, it can be the difference between you being excited about playing bass at that moment or you just feeling like you're phoning it in. And, um, you know, a lot, of these, a lot of these lessons that I learned referencing these, these different elements and competencies were, were born out of situations where, like I was alluding to before, I kind of fell on my face or, you know, had some humbling circumstances, you know, happen. And so, so that's, that's how I learned a lot of the stuff. But what's cool now is that I've been playing long enough and I've been playing with enough different types of artists now to where what I, what I realize is that I gave so much attention to, to technique at the beginning without really understanding the whole entirety of what I, what I needed to be going for as a bass player. But now, in retrospect, I see how important technique was in enabling me to be able to successfully play a good groove or play with good tone. And so now I can, I can look back with 2020 Vision and kind of see that it, had I not developed enough technique, not to say that, you know, I didn't, <laughs> didn't not to say that, that, you know, what I was working on couldn't have been balanced better, but had I not developed enough technique, that could have also been a stumbling block for me when I was working on the other competencies. So now, I, you know, I feel like it's important to, with a new player, to kind of show them why technique matters, but course it shouldn't be just your your primary focus but it's a very important element that has to be developed if you want to get out what you hear in your head through the instrument yeah you could hear the most glorious line in in the world and if you stumble or step all over it on the fingerboard it sounds you know dirty or or out of time Mm -hmm. how does that benefit the listener you know they they don't ever get to really experience what it is that, that you conceived yeah so uh, before we move on to some of the other fun gigs you might have had and how you approach them, I feel like I need to hop on the uh, 
your signature bass because uh, I feel like Ibanez has done a wonderful job uh, of promoting it because I feel like I see it in many places and I think when I was at NAM, the posters of your bass were bigger than posters of some of the big heavy metal stars they have signature uh, guitars with and it just made me proud to know you and, and happy for you because uh, and you know it's a modern looking instrument but but all the videos you've posted there's certainly more traditional jazz based tones flying out of that thing as well it seems super versatile and and uh, don't be scared to make it sound like a sales pitch please <laughs> please, please tell everyone why that bass is so fantastic oh uh, well, well thanks yeah, I, I, I can't say enough about Ibanez. Um, they have been, they've been so good to me and, and so gracious. And the bass that, that you're referring to is, is actually my second signature model with them. I, I, and the first one is a six-string bass, which they still sell. But uh, that was out for several years before the five-string came out. So I have a six-string bass that's, the model is the A&B 306. Okay. That's more of a modern sounding instrument. And, yeah. and they wanted to do that one first. Uh, even though I was playing a, a prototype five string at the time I had the, the six that, that they had built for me, they, the, um, the company really felt like they wanted the first signature model to be more of kind of like a flagship instrument. And they just kind of viewed the six string bass as being more of, of that sort of representative image. They wanted know? the Adam Nitti Millennium Falcon. I guess. Yeah, yeah. 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 So... And, and it's funny because I I went back and forth with them with that because to me it was I, I was thinking I was trying to put myself in their in their shoes and think well you know the more marketable instrument is going to be the five string bass why don't we do that first yeah. um, you know six string is a niche of a niche you know yeah. most players don't play it um, the, the the truth is that most of most most if not all of the gigs that I do outside of my own. I don't even use a six-string bass, but it's been very much a, a necessary tool for my own music and my own albums. So they just felt like, no, we want to we want to do this. We want to sort of come out, kind of show people, you know, this particular instrument, all the all the great features and workmanship that, that goes into this. And so that's that's what we did first, and that and that was great. Um, and we sold. Uh, we sold more of those than I actually expected. They, there were there were two versions of it. At first, there was a um, there was a hand built version that, that you could buy, and it was a would more expensive the, version. Would that be the Ibanez Custom Shop then, or how does that work? That so they have a ultra high end luthier in Japan, whose name I can't even pronounce that well, but uh, very very well known and. He's the one that was building their high-line signature model instruments. And being hand-built, they were more expensive. They take longer to manufacture and all that other stuff. So they had that model, and then about a year, year and a half later, they came out with a more affordable model, which was built on CNC machines. Um, and it, you know, it took it took a lot of money off the sales price. But what was most exciting about that for me was not so much that it was just a cheaper instrument that was more accessible to people. They, it was the first signature bass that they had done where they had literally taken the build sheet for the hand-built custom and they, they just about 100% duplicated it for the, for the factory model. Mm-hmm. And to that, 
up until that point in time, the factory versions of the signature model bases had electronics that were less expensive. They weren't as, as high a quality electronics. They maybe had a little bit of a compromise in terms of like the hardware or maybe some other aesthetic quality that wasn't quite up to up to the same level as the hand-built custom. But we talked a lot. We talked a lot about the direction of the the factory-built one, and we figured out a way to kind of still keep it at a reasonable price point, but still have the custom-built Bartolini electronics, still have the uh, the multi-laminate body and, and neck neck through construction. I mean, everything about the um, the the hand-built feature-wise, just about everything was incorporated into the CNC build. The only thing that really stood out that was that was different was the aesthetics in that the finish on the hand-built was a little bit more elaborate. Um, quick, so, quick follow-up yeah, question, pardon me, yeah. before I forget. Why is neck-through important to you, and why are Bartolini's important to you? The neck-through, and I, I'm not, you know, a luthier by trade, but for the type of tone that we were looking for for that particular base, uh, the neck through was just more conducive to, to getting that. It was going to give us some more sustain, and because the base also had a had a finish on it, like a gloss finish on it, the way all the elements came together, the wood, the, the types of wood, the finish, and the neck through, the way it all came together allowed us to get a, a more of the tone that we were looking for, which. I don't know another way to describe it except to, to call it upfront. We were looking for a tone that was a little bit had the capacity to be more upfront and pointy, if you will, mm-hmm. if if you needed to be able to cut through. Yes. In different contexts. So that's why we did that. I don't necessarily prefer neck through to bolt on. My other signature base is a bolt on. I love them both for different reasons, but they have different sonic qualities. So that was the reason for that. Fast forward a little bit. Um, we had enough inquiries about the five-string prototype that they had built for me that they expressed interest in wanting to do a signature version of that base. So what we ended up doing was instead of retaining both versions of the six-string, the expensive hand-built and the less expensive factory, what, what they ended up doing was, and I think it was a good move, they ended up just keeping both factory models. So so the product line now for, for me, there is there's the, the, uh, the factory-built six-string, signature and then there's the factory built five string the five string is the amb 205 and to your point earlier the five string bass is more of a traditional approach to the instrument still it comes from the sound gear um product line so it still has a modern looking body mm-hmm. but everything else about it is really sort of tailored towards going for uh, the sound and feel of a j bass yes so the pickups are mounted where they would be on like a mid 70s j um, it's a um, it's a uh, swamp ash body like a lot of J bases are. It's a maple neck with a maple fingerboard like a lot of J bases are, and it, it takes that basic formula and modernizes it a little bit with a, a 24 fret fingerboard. Um, it has an active circuit, but there's a there's actually a passive buffer control in the cavity that's coupled with the active circuit that allows you to move more in the direction of passive tone. So it's super versatile in terms of the different types of sounds that you can get from it. And um, 
and that's the bass that I've used on majority of the tours I've done since since its its release and playing with with other artists. And again, I mean, I, I'm I'm so grateful that 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 Ibanez as a company has been even willing to go down th- this road with me. Um, you know, certainly don't don't take it for for granted. But um, yeah, it's it's another dream come true, really. I mean, yeah. it's you know that's something that. I look, you know, I look at my base heroes, the ones that have had these these bases, and you seek out what they're what they're doing. You know, you're always curious about, hey, what's the what kind of what kind of features do they have? What do they like to play? How do they like the instruments to feel? I've been lucky; I've been able to play a lot of my heroes' instruments: Victor Wooten, John Patitucci, to name a couple. You know, had a chance to kind of feel what is what do they like? You know, yeah. I've kind of got my thing that I that I like, and and uh, and that's what that's what these instruments are. Oh, and you mentioned Bartolini too. You know, they. They are the, the manufacturer of the electronics for, for both of these instruments. And both circuits and both bases are, are completely customized circuits. So they are, they're unique to those instruments. Um, they're loosely based on um, a TMB circuit that, that, that they've had going for a long time, treble mid-range and, and bass controls and uh, um, switches for frequency on, on, the, uh, on the mid-range. And I'm super curious about yeah, that part of my absolutely. interruption. Because uh, I play primarily passive basses mm-hmm. and the few active ones I've liked the center point frequency of the EQ has been sort of unusual mm-hmm. so on your basses what are they do you know so I can't I, I can tell you that the mid-range is is 250 500 and, and 750 okay for the for the frequencies um, the treble and the bass are both shelving filters okay I don't can't tell you i apologize exactly no where those where those cross over but um they're very usable and yeah. and they seem to work well with the instruments that you know i love i love passive instruments just as much as as active instruments i feel like they work better in certain situations you yeah. know um i've learned a lot about about different bass guitars but you know the cool thing about the, the circuits, at least in my bases, is that you get a lot of headroom to be able to boost or cut. And so carving out tones and you know custom tailoring things, it's it's not hard to do. And quite honestly, you know the, my bases they have enough headroom to where a lot of times I'm I'm running with by default cut frequencies yeah. on the on the bass and mid range controls to get sort of a neutral point that I like to hear for my ears. Yeah. And then there's other players that have purchased them that they love boosting stuff. They like a real hype type of sound. And yeah. I'm I don't know, I, I my tastes are a little bit a little bit different. I just came from Mark Childers house I don't talk to him much at all but he's a dear friend and just one of the most I feel soulful and tasteful guys in Nashville he's just there's a soul that comes from his gospel background that he brings into country that he is, is all his own I feel um, and he just reminded me of something that I had already seen on TV or something that you sub for him I did, so yeah. I think a lot of people might be really curious to how it is to jump in for a few weeks and fill in for the musical director nonetheless on a gig where everyone's been in place for many years that only plays arenas. How did you approach that? 
uh, that task. Yeah, I I can't say enough great things about Mark, and I agree with you. You know, he's definitely has his own voice, and um, it's a very very honest musical voice for for sure. And I met him not that long after I moved here and, and kind of followed him at a, at a little bit of a distance and we, we'd met through some mutual friends and, and um, always admired kind of what he was doing and he was he was always one of the guys that I always looked up to as like you know getting these great gigs and man it'd be so cool to be doing some of the stuff he's doing so yeah the the opportunity presented itself completely out of the blue he had to take a little short leave of absence from from Carrie Underwood's gig and and um he asked me to sub for him, which, of course, I was ecstatic about. But at the same time, it, it was a huge responsibility because it was kind of it was kind of made clear at the very beginning. There's not going to be any rehearsals or anything. You're, you're going out, you're meeting these people on the road, and you're just going for it. And the fact that he, the fact that he trusted me enough um, to to show up prepared and and do that that gig on, on you know for this type of a tour. It was a huge tour, you know, lots of lots of moving parts and um, lots of danger for that matter with all the pyrotechnics and all, the, you know, lots of things that I had to be aware of. Um, it, I mean, it was it meant a lot to me. So um, of course I approached it with with utmost seriousness, but um, it was incredible. You know, I, I had to I had to learn both the, the music and I also had to learn the choreography. Um, there were very there was a type of tour that had you know moving stages and and moving levels and um, as I said pyrotechnics like they're very very specific cued things that had to happen at certain times that if you're in the wrong place it could create kind of a minor disaster because you'll a look like a fool <laughs> b you could actually get hurt if you got burned and uh, and c you, you want to do the artist you know. Completely right. You want to be as professional as you can. So, so it was a big deal. But um, I, uh, I think I took. Realistically, it was a period of two weeks that I, that I worked to to prepare. I wasn't working all day long every day or anything, but I, I was listening all the time and and um, just memorizing you know a lot, memorizing all the music, of course, but also having to memorize the the choreography moves. And I was just just having to go th- from like drawings and diagrams. And then when I got out there and met them, I think it was, we were somewhere in the Northeast. It, some, I want to say it's my starting was in Pennsylvania. And um, when I got there, then they had they had a couple people that were showing me around. And, you know, I had a chance to, at, at Soundcheck, we, we, were, we were rehearsing the, the show. But it was amazing fun. Carrie was, was awesome. The whole band was, they couldn't have been any, any cooler. And... Um, you could tell too how much they really loved Mark. You know, it was it was, it was awesome, and I and it was, you know, I never for any moment, you know, felt anything other than you know the humility of being able to just kind of you know stand in, in his place during that that time and just enjoy the ride. And it, and it and it was cool. And that was was easily one of the biggest you know biggest tours I had ever done. I, I'd done other major label things before, but you know that was that was on a pretty high level. Technically, did you to make it easier on the? Did you just plug into his uh, DI Sansamp setup, or was it fractal at the time? It was fractal. Yeah, yeah, it was it was fractals that they yeah. were they were using on bass and guitars, I, yeah. I believe. And it was 
man, it was so easy just to yeah. plug in. And, and um, you know, I think the, the only adjustment we had to make was that maybe the output level of my instrument was slightly different than what he was used to playing. And yeah. I just, I used one, I used one bass for the, for the whole show. Um, I think I, I brought a, I don't even think I brought a backup because they had Mark's bases out there too. Yeah. He, he was, he was cool with me using one if I needed to. So it was just a, that part of it was, it was a piece of cake. There were no amps, of course, on stage. We were all, we all had ears and, um, it sounded great. It sounded fantastic. It sounded, it sounded even better than I expected because I was concerned that all the moving to different moving parts of the stage were going to have some sort of a proximity effect on what I was feeling in terms of vibration and stuff like that. But man, it was it was dead even everywhere. It was it was so cool. I was right. nerding out big time on just all the tech and stuff. You yeah, know? yeah. So. so next question then would be, I think it's still your current gig, right? Which is uh, Kenny Loggins? Yeah, yeah, yeah. As current as it can be in Corona time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's that's why. <laughs> yeah. So uh, usually artists that are at that sort of legacy level. Yeah, that's, a, that's at, the same word I use. And, and yeah, it's uh, that has that amount of just unabashedly fun material. It seems like it would be very joy focused out there with somebody like him. Yeah. That. This this gig, um, I've got to give kudos to my my good friend Scott Bernard, um, he's a uh, guitar player, lead guitarist for the band, who you know is a large part in my being able to to get involved, as well as uh, former keyboard player Scott Sheriff, who who plays with Carrie Underwood now. With, yeah, with I know Mark. Scott. Yeah, we did some work with Richard Marks together yeah. for a while. Yeah, cool, cool. Yeah, yeah. yeah. so yeah. it's it's a cool little tight family, you know, but. Um, But yeah, those guys went to bat for me, and and this was another one of those situations where I didn't have to audition. It was uh, got hired on, unfortunately, on on you know positive referrals, and and again showed up with no rehearsals. And my very first my very first gig with Kenny was actually a a dual gig, Kenny and Michael McDonald, and I was in band for both artists. Oh wow! So. I'm like a little giddy schoolgirl. I mean, because As you should be. I, I grew up singing along to you know both of their both of their their tunes all the time, hearing them all the time on the radio, and just like you said, it's just fun music. You know, it's just great players on all those recordings. You know, they second to none studio cats on all this stuff. So listening from both the perspective of music fan and as musician you know bass player and then getting to to actually play on stage you know with these guys was just it was really surreal and um i you know I, the, that that first night was just un- unbelievable and and uh, you know we don't play a lot of shows um like you said kenny's like kenny's a legacy artist now it's like he kind of picks and chooses what he likes to do the, the beauty in that is that, you know, we, we, we go out and on fly dates mostly and, and we play gigs where we're really well accommodated and it's, you know, it's, it's, it's honestly pretty, pretty cush and, and pretty comfortable and, and it's a blessing, man. And, and it's, it's enough money to where it is a, is a great source of being able to, to pay bills, but at the same time it affords us so much time to do our other things, you know, and it's allowed me to play with a lot of other bands and still do other tour dates and work on my music and all that so man it's been so fun and and uh, i've learned 
I learned so much from from Kenny. You know, Kenny is very. Kenny is so in tune with every musical part for every one of his songs. Like it would blow your mind how much he knows note for note what a bass part should be from 30 years ago. You know, it's it's crazy. And so there was there was a bit of a um, I'll call it a learning curve, you know, for the gig at the beginning where I, you know, I came in and like I typically do, I always play to kind of what the artist is used to. I want them to be comfortable. I start off for there. And if I know, I'll only go outside of that if an artist wants me to. So, you know, I played it very, very safe. And, and um, he was a great source of, of um, mentorship for both um, bass playing things and even vocal things because one of, my, one of my favorite things about the gigs is how much singing we do. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, I've been singing for, for a long time with, with different bands throughout the years, but a lot of people don't know that about me. So it's kind of cool because this gig has kind of shown other people that I do that as well. And you, yeah. know, you know how it is. If, yeah. you, if you can do at least background vocals, that makes you a more marketable player as well. So it's been awesome being able to, to work on that as well. And he's just been a great, just a great source of feedback for all those things. It's been awesome. And you play your signature, your own signature mall bass on that gig? Yeah, yeah. I bring out that 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 five string bass and and um, pretty much do everything with that. And then we, um, it's cool. Like they they backline instruments as well. And if I wanted to, I could just go out there and sh- and show up. And they they always have like a you know, like a Fender five string or something like that yeah. as a as a house bass um, from from backline, but. I like playing my instrument the way it's set up, and so I'll bring that with me, and then I'll, I'll have a backup there already. And so it's it's cool. I uh, went to a clinic at Guitar Center Hollywood last year uh, with Nathan East, mm. and it was very small, and it was an area like the corner of this coffee shop we're sitting in. So everything was very up close, and uh, and uh, he played quite a bit, and he he played the Footloose bass line, yeah. you know. And uh, and he explained that that was not just written out of pure talent at one time. He said, we played it live so much before it got recorded that what's on the record is a result of I had the original idea and then notes got added and subtracted and it got written over a few months to the recording date, which, you know, that's just... Not that he couldn't come up with something that great yeah. from the top of his head, but to me that made a lot of sense. It was very encouraging yeah. to hear, you know. Nathan's Nathan's another one of my favorites. Um, yeah, you know, if if you only kind of know Footloose from from the soundtrack perspective, you know, and you're yeah. not a bass player, you're not necessarily yeah. tuned into how deceptively intricate a lot of those parts are yeah. that that were crafted, you know, to make that to yeah. make that song come together and. Uh, it's it's definitely a focal point of, of the tune and and um, it's fun it's so fun live because you know we play things a little bit more aggressively and there's yeah. you know edgier guitar tones and the bass is louder and all that stuff so you know doing that as a unison with the with the guitar players is is it's an absolute blast it just feels great and then it's got the added challenge of you know singing the vocal parts over top of it so you've got that much activity level yeah, there, in there. there's a lot of yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm rubbing my head and my tummy at the same time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah.
the recent kind of thing I saw of yours on the social media was you playing an original composition in front of your screen and it was pretty like hard rock thing pretty hard rock leaning so I'm like what goes on here so my new record is supposed to come out uh, end of September beginning of October that's 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 what we're looking at now the, the mixes will actually be done completely after this week's over and they'll go to mastering but um, yeah this this will be my sixth album and I just I just decided I wanted to go a different direction and just tip the hat to my earliest influences you know musically and and I'm I came up listening to, to rock music and prog rock music and, and bands like Rush, Yes, Led Zeppelin and Aerosmith and and um, when I started playing bass, that's that's what I was into. And Getty Lee was my first bass hero, you know, because yeah. I was, was listening to, to what he was doing and at the time I was I was doubling on bass and keyboards, which is another another story altogether. Um, my very first formal training was on classical piano, so. Um, I didn't start playing the bass until after I had been doing that for a number of years. But, but yeah, I still to this day for in, enjoyment, um, I love listening to that stuff. And I, and I have I got into vinyl pretty heavy again, like about I guess it's been about seven or eight years ago. And, and when that happened, it, I, I got into this mode of buying all these nostalgic albums that I I had lost over the years, and and then listening to them all over again. It just it just got me excited about listening to music for enjoyment. And my, and my wife and I, we set up a listening room in, in one of the rooms of our house and just kind of made it an event. You know, it was, it was great. It was, it was a much needed kind of reset for me because I'd gotten to the point where, just to be completely honest, I'd gotten really burned out and um, I was never listening to music unless I was playing it, you know, for, for work because I just wanted to kind of escape and do other things, you know. So... So that sort of rekindled my, my interest in listening to music for enjoyment. And, and so, you know, over the last couple years, I thought about the idea of doing a rock record. And the original concept was based around the idea of it still being kind of muso-directed and there being, you know, musically interesting parts and there would be solos and, and stuff like that. But the record, it, it changed as it, as it went along. Um, it's... I guess you could call it more of a sort of a modern prog rock record, but it's it's not it's not contrivedly complex. It's very you know verse, bridge, chorus, formulaic type of stuff. But with hopefully people will consider them very interesting melodies and, and interesting parts. So I went completely nuts, and and my my thoughts originally were just to I was going to hire a bunch of my favorite singers that I knew for, throughout the years. But then when I was, I was actually the one singing on the demos when I was doing pre-production. And the more I was sharing the demos with people, I had people telling me, man, you should sing on this. And I was like, no, what are you talking about? I don't, you know, there's people do this better than me. And, and I just kind of kept getting that, that still small voice from the encouragement of folks. And before you knew it, it was one of those things where the direction of the record changed. I ended up singing on, on everything. There's only one song where I've got a... A, a special guest vocalist who's singing, I'm singing the verses and he's singing the choruses and, and it's somebody I used to play in a, in a band with many years ago, his name's Billy Buchanan an amazing, amazing singer but we, it's a, the, the song was a co-write between the two of us and back from the 90s and so we decided to put it on the record and bring it back and so I've reinvented it a little bit 
but everything else is me on, on every single background vocal, um, every every lead vocal. So um, so that was one thing that was that was brand new that I think any listeners of my music will definitely notice right away is, is very different. But the other thing was that I. And I still kind of laugh about this, but I, I wanted to write from a different perspective than the bass guitar and keyboards, which are sort of the two places that I sort of like to go to most for, for composing. And I got a guitar from Ibanez, and I started tinkering on it, and I essentially just taught myself to play guitar good enough where I could start to put together parts, and I wrote the record from the perspective of, of guitar. And that has been incredibly illuminating it changed my whole approach and I played about 90% of the guitars on the record now when I say I played guitar on the record what I really mean is that I punched in yeah. <laughs> like yeah, yeah, yeah. you know all throughout the all throughout the songs you know it, it, I, and I don't have any pride I don't have any pride in admitting to people that you know that a lot of the parts had to be pieced together but that is that is largely where these things came from and from the guitar perspective was born my way of thinking entirely different about the composition and people will hear that the compositions don't just sound like I took my my typical uh, instrumental tunes and added vocals they they definitely started out as creations that were based around vocal melodies and some people probably are going to be a little taken aback you know it's 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 going to be very different from all my prior releases but but my hope is that Maybe for some, you know, for the number of people that maybe don't like it as much, there may be as many people or more that are introduced to my music in this new perspective. I, maybe, I'm, I'm really hoping I might gain some new listeners this way, but it was so much fun to make this record. So much fun. That's great. You got a, you got a sort of approximate timeline where people can look for this thing? Yeah, I'm, I'm starting to give like little uh, sneak peek clips yeah. on, online on my social media, um, my Facebook and Instagram and, and all of that, but the the objective right now is is to have a the, the digital release should be no later than the beginning of October hopefully a little sooner I'm trying to buy myself a little extra time and then um, the the CD I'm, I'm, I'm doing hard media releases there's gonna be a CD version of it which will be released very soon after digital within just a couple weeks and then I've, I'm also gonna do a vinyl special edition as well and that may that may or may not be a result of um, a crowdfunding effort. We'll, we'll, we'll see. Um, it's, a, it's a different world doing the vinyl um, compared, to, compared to the CDs when it comes to, to cost. So I'm just going to kind of see how it goes. Right. So the little clip I heard from this record, you played with a pick on the bass, and there was a little bit of dirt. So yeah. how, is, how is your signal chain from the nerd perspective that we operate here at the Lowdown Society? What, what exactly was it? How is it different from your normal DI clean fusion tone? So traditionally, if I'm, if I'm recording, I like to have at least two DI sources that I'm recording with. So I'll have one that's sort of like a one-to-one unmodified, not, not colored type of, of source. And I usually will use, um, um, I've got a couple favorite pieces of gear that I'll use for that. One is a Creation Audio. It's an MW1 studio tool. It has a transformerless DI in it. It's really, really nice. Um, then I also, I also have a, an old Evil Twin um, tube bass DI. Yeah. 
That's a great piece. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's great. It's, it's got uh, gain control. It acts as a preamp as well. Um, that's another one that I, I might use. And um, but but more recently, um, in, on this this entire record, what I ended up, ended up using because I acquired some some other new gear in the last couple years, I, I ran through an Aguilar uh, DB680 tube preamp. It's an old old preamp that they don't make anymore. It's a really cool, nice sounding um, tube preamp, and I ran that through a TubeTech CL1B compressor, and so. I decided that instead of having just a pure one-to-one, I, you know, I have a slight bit of coloration from, from running through those pieces of gear. So that was sort of my, that was my default tone. And then alongside that, I ran an overdriven tone, which I mostly used an Aguilar Tone Hammer for that. And um, I used that for most of the tunes. And then there's one or two tunes that I um, use that in conjunction with a new piece that I picked up. It's made by um, GR Bass. It's an Italian company. They have this pedal called the Pure Drive. It's a it's a preamp pedal, and I and I tried that on a couple things as well. So, so the the tones that, that you'll hear on this record, they're a, they're a combination of well, they're a blend of those two signals. And um, if you listen close, you know some I, I have um, intentionally more dirt blended in than, than the others. But every single one of them has that at least as sort of like a steady state distortion in some in some capacity, which which gives the bass track and the bass tone it's like sort of like a nice little compressed nature with the with the lows all the way through to like the low mids. It's, it's pretty cool the way it works. Wow, that's nice. And I hope uh, I hope you'll do a, a release party gig in Nashville if those are legal. Absolutely, yeah. That is even if we have to do a drive-in type thing. I actually, it's funny you, you asked about that. I talked to a production guy that works out at, at the the studio I work out at, who works for a company that specializes in that stuff. When we we started discussions yesterday, so yeah. So I do have kind of like a you know a loose loose plan in, in place, but. Um, I've got a lot of practicing to, to do before then for singing some of these parts over some of these bass lines. It's, yeah, oh yeah. You know, I, I, didn't, I didn't track any of these simultaneously on the record. They were all done separately. Yeah. So, so that'll be a fun challenge. Yeah, and staffing the band will be fun too because yeah. you're, you're playing a different thing than you normally are. Yeah, I'm gonna, it's going to be a different, um, different ensemble than I'm used to having. I'm going to need at least two guitar players. And yeah. I might even need another bass player. We'll see how it goes. Yeah, so. <laughs> that's great. So, uh, any word on on? Uh, I have a few people that are playing for major country acts that actually have shows in about a month or two. Uh, no tours, because all tours are down. But singular casino shows seem to be feasible again in a few months in certain areas that are not very corona-ridden. Do yeah. you have any? Uh, uh, do you have any dates with with Kenny? That yeah, are with with Kenny, we're still in a holding pattern. There are dates that the promoters have already canceled. Yeah, but there's some that they're waiting until the last minute to kind of see how feasible it'll be. So, technically, I have a, just a few. I could count them on one hand. There's a few dates left on the calendar for 2020, but nobody's going to be surprised if they yeah. go ahead and reschedule those for 2021. Yeah. So the only gigs that I've done um, since this whole craziness started have, have been local. We, we did a did a couple things at, at Third and Lindsley in, in Nashville, and um, and that's it. Everything else has has just been uh, 
like I said, in a, in a holding pattern. Before we uh, we go here, I want you to have a chance to promote your online courses oh, cool. and your base school. Because uh, I went through the About Me section on your website before you came down here. And I, I would assume that's quite a big thing for you. It seems like you've had it in motion for a long time. Yeah, the music education thing was originally born from my needing just to make some gas money in, in college. And I, yeah. I, I was teaching at a at a mom and pop shop, you know, for a little while. And then just throughout the years, it, it, I, I, I kept doing it in, in, at different levels. And um, eventually we started with a with a, the help of a partner of mine. My, my first ever uh, music school was called Music Dojo. It was a joint venture with this bass player named Len Sitnik. And that was kind of our, our foray into the online thing. But that happened before the the big YouTube phenomenon and yeah. the, you know, complete influx of, of, uh, of media sort of changing how it was, you know, going to be presented online. So that, we, we ended up bringing that to a close, but in 2012, I started a site called adamnittymusiceducation.com, and that's been the hub for all my educational efforts online since then, and, okay. and it's, a, it's a subscription-based site, like a lot of sites are, and I have a, I have a curriculum-based approach up there. Um, cover all the all the core competencies like technique, improvisation, groove and timekeeping, reading, ear training, styles and repertoire, um, and applied harmony and theory. So those those eight competencies are all represented with a library of, of lessons, and, and um, people subscribe and and uh, they can go on whenever they want. And it's it's all HD video, and I do I do live seminars. Uh, try to do them a couple times a month, um, where. We, we meet live, and those that can't be there, we uh, we archive it for, for later viewing. And so, um, yeah, so it's it's cool. It's 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 about as interactive as you can get, you know, without being in, in person with somebody. Yeah. And your personal website, where people can hear your actual previous solo albums, there's so, since there's so many, it's just adamnittymusic.com then, or adamnittymusic.com or adamnitty.com, and that's they're both they both point to the same place. Okay, great. Um, but it's it's Adam N I T T I, not Y. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes people get confused. Yeah, like the Nitty Ditty Dirt yeah. Dirt Band. Yeah. Very Italian. Very Italian, as they say around here. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, I can't thank you enough for your man. time, man. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been, a, it's been a pleasure and an honor getting to do this. Thanks, everyone, as usual, for listening to the Lowdown Society podcast. Uh, there's just so much information and education and thoughtfulness that I felt I personally got from talking to Adam that I will be taking with me and learning from myself. I'm absolutely going to... Uh, look at his educational website to improve my own playing. I think he has a lot to teach all of us, so I encourage you to do the same. The next episode will be shortly behind this one, and it would be one of the biggest session guys in the Nashville scene the last few years. I'm very excited for it, so you guys come back for the next episode. Until then, keep it funky, keep it low, and keep it right here on the Lowdown Society Podcast.